And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. Welcome to Startup Hustle. This is our four-part special series on Silicon Valley investment trends now and in the future. My name is Steve Hoffman. I am your host. I'm also the CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading startup incubators and accelerators. And I'm the author of three books. My first book, Make Elephants Fly, is all about the process of radical innovation. My second book, Surviving a Startup, is about how startups struggle to succeed and what separates those startups that actually break through from those that fail. And my third book is The Five Forces That Change Everything. And this is about how technology like AI, CRISPR gene editing, nanotechnology, and other technologies are changing the world and changing our lives. Today, I have a very special guest, Jay Um, and I will introduce him in a second. But before I do, I want to thank the Startup Hustle sponsor, Fullscale.io. They help you find software teams affordably and quickly. So Jay Um is the managing partner of GFT Ventures, and he is also the former partner at TransLink Capital and Samsung Ventures. So Jay, wonderful to have you on the show. Steve, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. And uh, it's great to see you kind of in your element. It's awesome. Thank you. You know, Jay, I've known Jay for a long time. And Jay, this is a new venture capital firm for you. And it's very exciting because GFT stands for Global Frontier Technologies. Can you tell us a little about what a frontier technology is? Absolutely. So frontier technology in general means that it's basically a new, new emerging horizontal technology trend that is on the cutting edge that is clearly has the potential to impact the way we do business, every single vertical industry, but hasn't yet fully emerged to a point where it's widely adopted that it's going to be around. Now, the areas that GFT Ventures, Global Frontier Technology Ventures, the firm I co-founded, um, works in includes areas that are now very obvious that have emerged. These are areas like AI that Steve just mentioned, but also uh, AI application areas of robotics, automation. It could be digital health applications, cybersecurity applications and whatnot. But we're also keeping an eye out on what's next to be emerging because the way that you can be successful as an investor is rather than to wait until it becomes in a category for everybody else to invest in, is to try to identify those trends ahead of time and be able to actually find the right teams to bet on. And thus you enjoy the benefit of not only that company success, but that entire wave of frontier becoming more mainstream. One of the reasons that we started GFT Ventures, frankly, was the success that myself and my partner 
who you may know, Steve, Jeff Herbst, who had left, has now left NVIDIA after 20 years leading corp dev, biz dev, M&A, setting up the corporate investment program. These areas like AI and whatnot, we invested well over a decade ago, right? And because of that, we now enjoy the benefits of having exits, having great deal flow, having a little bit of a reputation. But we also recognize that keeping an eye out on what's on the cutting edge, what's emerging, was the way that we became successful. And so we're spending a fair amount of effort into those new areas as well. So I want to hear about this. Give me some concrete examples of frontier technologies, ones that maybe our listeners haven't even heard about. You know what? I, I think a lot of people now have heard of a lot of these areas. I think what's really interesting for me, some of the most exciting um, frontier tech technology areas today that may not have become mainstream for everybody else to invest in are areas like synthetic biology or genomics. And um, it's almost um, full circle for me personally, because I actually studied, this was 30 years ago, uh, ha I studied chemistry and had a biochem uh, degree. So I was doing research in a lab. And after spending 20 plus years doing you know, IT technology investing, I finally am able to leverage some of the academic training that I had way back in the day. So those are two of many areas that are emerging uh, because of the implication and the impact of these areas across the amount of data that comes out of these areas, the amount of impact it has on healthcare, on general health and well-being, has uh, such a big application area that uh, you know it's no surprise that it's uh, it's becoming rapidly um, a very uh, hot area that a lot of investors are trying to jump into. Well, the parallels are there. If you think of software. You know, in terms of genomics and gene editing, we have literally discovered the source code for life on this planet for plants and animals. So if you look at how many possibilities are, it's, it's almost unimaginable. It's almost endless. Like we can, you know, everything from curing disease to creating new types of crops to generating new types of animals that we've never seen and modifying our own bodies, like right. who we are and future generations actually creating future generations of people. So just to bring it back down to earth, what are, name a couple exciting startups that you're looking at right now in this field. Um, Steve, are you talking specifically about some of these areas in synthetic biology and genomics? Yes. Yeah, be happy to share. Um, you know, there's actually a couple that come to mind. Uh, one of them I can talk about because I'm actually an investor in the company, not from a GFT perspective, but from a personal level. Um, this particular company, um, I don't know, are we comfortable naming names or how do we do yeah, this? Yes, sure. Fire away. <laughs> okay, great. So the first company I'll talk about is actually called Plantable, uh, Plantable Foods. And uh, basically, it's a plant-based protein. So we're all, I think, pretty familiar by now with you know, what's happening already with the meat alternatives that are now fully commercialized, whether it's Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods and whatnot. So the Impossible Burger has been, been, been out there now for well over a couple of years. Um, the challenge is, you know, people have different tastes and they prefer their certain types of foods that they're used to. And uh, ultimately to try to switch over the end product, whether it's, you know, a hamburger meat 
or something like a steak is, is actually challenging. If you could actually provide the ingredients to create food based upon the actual protein element, then that becomes a little more interesting. So we all know that peas or soybeans, you know, or whatnot have actually been a great source of alternative protein uh, well over, you know, uh, human history. Um, but they have their own challenges as well, because again, in terms of cultivating that, it does require a pretty massive carbon footprint. So if there's a way to create a unique protein that is plant-based, that actually is colorless, flavorless, and odorless, that can be a food additive or a main ingredient in a food, uh, similar to an egg white or whatnot that we just talked about. And if the manufacturing process is incredibly sustainable, then there could be a lot of interest there. So this particular company uh, actually is creating that uh, plant-based protein alternative that could be applied to any sort of food across multiple different areas as dairy alternatives, meat alternatives, snack alternatives, sports and health nutrition, and so on and so forth. That is fascinating. And it's, you know, it's a real boon if you're a vegan or a vegetarian. You can, you can use this plant-based protein in you know, a variety of different dishes and probably adapt to it. Now, I have a question for you. So this plant-based protein, it's being created in the lab? Or is it, how is it being created? Well, it's cultivated actually in, in a farm because it's algae-based, right? And so, you know, you do need the land for that and whatnot, but primarily because it's algae-based, it's water, um, you know, it's sunshine, and then, you know, it's the algae itself that once you harvest that, then you can extract the protein from. So it's, it's pretty exciting. You know, the carbon footprint and, and all of that is very sustainable. So that's what oh. I think makes a lot of people excited. Interesting. So in a related topic, what do you think of lab-grown meat? So they have lab-grown beef <laughs> and chicken now, pork. It's coming out. I heard it's in Singapore. What yeah. do you think of that? Well, there's even seafood, right? Um, yes. So there's lab-grown everything. Um, I mean, I, I actually spent time in a lab, right? And so I know it's possible. Um, and I know there are some commercial, you know, available products out there. But building anything in lab scale requires still a lot of resources, right? And again, if you think about the lab environment, you basically have to apply all the resources that you need to create any sort of uh, living organism in a lab because you need to fill all the elements. You know, the great thing about actually doing that outdoors in a farm environment, you can leverage a lot of natural resources. Like first and foremost, the biggest resource that goes into this is light and heat, right? Energy. And you have the big old sun in the sky. If you can leverage that, you know, your cost base and the scalability of that is substantially higher. So I have a bias towards if you can do it on a farm in natural environment that is sustainable, that's actually a much more cost-effective solution. It makes sense because this algae is going to, you know, the power source is the sun. You don't have mm -hmm. to pay for that. I hear lab-grown meats can some of them can consume a lot of power to make and that I actually means... think the footprint is 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 actually really really big so i think all of us need to do the math on that before we really get too excited yes so there are other technologies too like aqua bounty who makes uh gene edited salmon that grow faster what do you mm. think of this area oh steve we're, we're we're getting close to kind of that whole like you know playing god kind of dilemma here um, and you mentioned, you know, changing body parts, creating new animals and whatnot. Um, 
the, the technology has been there for a long time. I think we all are aware, you know, when did, when was uh, the, uh, when was Dolly news? That was at least 20 years ago. Right. And then there's been, I'm sure many, many experiences that you and I have never even heard of that's actually happening right now. Um, I, I think that, that, that is a, a tricky area because I do think that ethics to kind of technology development that's now probably being more discussed actively than ever before, it really comes to the forefront. And, you know, just because you can do it from a technology perspective, I don't know, even though I'm a venture capitalist, I invest in, you know, technology entrepreneurs, I think, I think there's a fine line that you need to really think long and hard about before you cross that. Uh, because of the uh, implications and ramifications, not only the benefits, but also the potential negative sides as well. Yeah. So, what if um, these, what if these salmon get loose and start breeding with normal salmon? Will salmon change forever? So that's an effort. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, conspiracy theories about, you know, how, how this can create mutations that could really destroy ecosystems and whatnot. There, I mean, there's a lot of implication there that we need to be so, yeah, really we've been living, about. But I'm going to play devil's advocate, um, and I'll truly be the devil. So Uh-oh. we've been living <laughs> with GMO products, genetically modified yes, organisms, for quite a while. You yes. know, big companies like Monsanto have been doing this. I am I grew up in Davis, California, and they've been doing it, oh, you yeah, know, sure. since the flavor saver tomato. So. This is something it's, you know, GMO products in Europe are banned in the U.S. We're, you know, capitalism rules, but, (laughs) you know, the bottom line matters. But we're entering a world now that is changing rapidly, like Mm -hmm. climate change is changing. I know at the University of Florida, for example, they are raising gene edited, they are experimenting with gene edited cattle. And why? Because these specific gene edits allow cattle to survive in higher heat, higher heat yes. areas. Yes. So, you know, we're in, in some sense, we're, we're kind of going to be forced to gene edit a lot of our crops, a lot of our livestock simply so that as climates change, they can thrive. So, so there's ethical issues on both sides. Right. And I don't see us going back, honestly, you know, the, the, People are going to do this as long as there's no terrible repercussions like health problems for human beings and all these things. We're going to charge forward. And Aquabounty uh, just, you know, they got approval last year to sell their salmon. It, it could be in the market. People can be buying it right now. So you might not even know it, but you might have already eaten one because they're going out to stores. Yeah. And we don't require people to label these things. You know, as well, gene well, Steve, you, you hit, hit the nail on the head. For me, that's the biggest thing, right? And, and in general, I agree with you. You know, the cat's out of the bag. It, it, it's going to happen. And it's actually happened. We all know this. GMO crops are out there. Um, and, you know, the same modification and the same principles can definitely apply to livestock and animals. There's no question. And things are happening and whatnot. The challenge that I have, and the good news is, you know, GMO based products are now being labeled in the US as well, right? Why would they not apply that same principle to GMO-based animal products? I have to believe common sense will rule and that will happen. And then it's really up to me as a choice. So I already have a choice as a consumer to choose between you know, farmed salmon or wild salmon, right? I know the wild salmon is probably gonna be two, three X more expensive, 
And some would argue because our taste buds are so now adapted to farm salmon that it's not going to even taste as good. But I do know I have a choice and I'll make that choice consciously. What I don't want to happen is to make a purchase assuming that it's wild salmon or farm salmon and then later find out that actually that was genetically modified. That would be a problem for me. It would be a problem for me too. And honestly, I think it's unethical not to give people the information over their the products they're consuming, putting in their body, so they know what it is. I think we yeah, should all, I, and, I I, think, I, and I don't follow the FDI guidelines on this specifically. I have to believe, because they are now labeling GMO products generally across the board, that they'll do the same with animal products too. Yeah, they have to. And, you know, they're experimenting with all sorts of cool stuff now. They're cloning beef, mm-hmm. <laughs> even beef, you know, cows. So we can do a lot. And I think it's going to radically alter you know, what we eat, what we put in our mouths over the coming decades. Now, that's one area of frontier technology that's evolving very quickly. And there are also people, and you talked about ethical issues, so I want to get back to this. You know, they're gene editing human beings. We've uh, seen it in China, you know, where they they <laughs> gene edited the, the, the embryos to supposedly protect them against AIDS. Now, it, this was done in China. And also, uh, we I know in Russia, there are people saying that they're going to offer this as a service, you know, to gene edit human embryos so that we can people can enhance certain traits, although it hasn't happened. Um, it could happen at any point uh, in any country. Like it doesn't, you know, we could prohibit it in the United States, but Albania or South Africa or you name it, Vietnam could decide they want to go ahead and do this and take in a lot of capital to allow people to start to gene edit themselves. Mm -hmm. Would you be investing in that? What do you think of that? Oh, God, that's really, really tricky and something that I wasn't really prepared to talk about today. Um, it's, it's a tough one. W- would I invest in companies that were actually doing that versus would what if, I invest what... in companies that were building the technology to enable, you know, potential customers to do that are two different questions in my mind. Okay. Um, for me to invest in companies that were actually doing gene editing for human. And, and I, I understand the argument that, you know, there's plenty of benefits, right. And that, that will result from a much healthier, longer, life if you do some of those techniques that are already out there and some folks are already doing it um but again the ramifications there you know where do you draw the line right and 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 at some point we've all seen the sci-fi movies and how that eventually will skew human society over time you know we don't even need to talk about that but as a technology investor if somebody was providing the tools the platform to do that would i take a look at that absolutely i would um, do I think a company will emerge from that riffraff in terms of the dominant development platform, so to speak? So you mentioned, Steve, the a- analogy with software. Well, why would there not be a similar platform that would enable gene editing in a much more easier and user-friendly interface? Of course there would be. And I, I would be very excited to take a look at that. Yeah. So we're seeing right now with CRISPR, it's an amazing tool. It's been, it's, it's ballooning the number of companies using CRISPR for gene therapies, you know, tackling diseases that were formerly impossible to even cure. And now they're coming up with potential cures for them, like, you know, congenital blindness, you know, spark therapeutics and just amazing stuff. And 
you know, I don't see, I see it as a inevitable progression that if we can eliminate cancers, if we can eliminate all these terrible diseases, Alzheimer's through gene editing, we're going to do it. Like people are going to do it because there'll be a huge demand, a huge market for that. And yes, there are risks. I think there are risks. Um, You know, it's really risk first reward at the end of the day. And I think um, if some countries do it and others don't, like, let's say the U.S. doesn't do that. Like, mm-hmm. let's say we, we, we say, no, it's, 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 it, it's morally unacceptable to edit human genes, either in the embryo, you know, or even gene therapies. There's arguments about that. But then China goes ahead and does it and they become the premier. Like, they, yes. you, you know, what, what are we going to do then? Are we going to just let, you know, the entire biotech industry shift to China? Oh, man. Steve, you, you asked some really, really tough, but very relevant questions. Um, you know, I, I think that, ans- that qu- the answer to the question has already been answered at a very senior government level. I don't think that's been made public per se, but I have to believe that as this whole geopolitical decoupling is already well underway and it's not reversible, I, I think, anytime soon, those analysis across every single industry from semiconductor industry to biotech has already been made. And the U.S. understands kind of what the challenge is, how they need to balance. And, and that's what a democracy does. They have to balance public opinion, you know, the general good, alongside with technology advancement, as well as obviously the competitive threat there. So um, I don't think, and I'm kind of backing out of this tough question, Steve, a little bit, but I don't think that's a decision that I need to make. And I'm really glad that I don't have to make that. You you don't have to make that personally, Jay. But I love to ask these questions because as a society, all of us have to think about this because there's a constant, there's a dialogue going on. And if we, as a democracy, we want to talk about this because we want to bring it to the surface and really understand it in a more nuanced fashion because it's not black and white. It's never going to be black and white. There's all these different forces coming, you know, all the good things and all the bad things with all these technologies. Let's go to some of the other frontier technologies that you find particularly exciting and startups you're interested in. Yeah. So, again, you know, we just talked about a couple of areas that are in the very forefront uh, of of, a frontier, Um, but there's still, I would say, plenty of already emerged frontier tech that we're still in the early innings on. And, you know, I think more, more, more than most, I mean, Steve, you know the impact of AI, how that's really changing the way that we work in every single functional category, every single vertical industry being impacted and whatnot. And, and while most consumers may not necessarily directly feel that change, some of the areas that I'm personally most excited about, uh, humans will actually be able to touch and feel and see the difference, right? So, um, among all the different application areas uh, of AI and AI advancements that I've touched, you know my background from Samsung and working with a lot of hardware companies like Foxconn and whatnot. Um, an area for, for me of high interest and passion is robotics, okay? Robotics and automation. And those two categories are bound together because when most people, when you say robotics, they immediately think about a humanoid robot. Robotics is so much broader than that, as we know, right? And so any sort of automation is a form of robotics. And the advancements that we've seen over the past couple of decades in AI, in sensor technology, in battery technology, motors, 
you know, even, you know, connectivity with 5G connectivity, enabling what's called brainless robots. So all the heavy processing can be done in the cloud, which makes it, the robots being much cheaper, lighter, consuming less battery, lasting longer, and all of those things. What, what that's enabling is it's enabling the actual replacement of manual human labor that frankly, nobody wants to do right? Repetitive, dangerous human labor that could be replaced. And you think about applications from all over, from the home, hotels, restaurants, hospitals, any sort of environment where you have repetitive work that most people would just not enjoy themselves doing, there's opportunities to replace that, right? I think and- there, I agree. I think there are huge opportunities in this area. And you know, right now in the United States, we're facing a labor shortage. Like we yes. do not have enough people, especially to do a lot of these jobs that people don't want to do. So that's as- that's hundred percent right. And you know, the challenge that the robotics industry has had for the last couple of decades is really how do you make these robots that do, you know, I would say arguably slightly more complex uh, tasks do it reliably? Because the minute that you have a breakdown or a service call or it's not operating properly, and you have to actually have somebody come out to see it, the economics are destroyed. Because if you think about it, the revenue potential of any of these service robots, right, is capped. Nobody's going to pay more than what they would pay a human being, right? And most of these robots can only do a fraction of what a human being can do. Human beings are versatile. You know, if if somebody, you know, uh, is missing from the kitchen, you know, the guy that's actually mopping the floor can go over and help out and vice versa. Robots can't do that. So because that's capped, the minute that you have an issue, then that just destroys the economics. And, you know, one of the reasons and one of the, the many reasons, frankly, that I think we haven't seen consumer-facing service robots flourish, uh, flourish more than we would think is because of the reliability issue. Think about, Steve, For the past 20 years, with all the advancements in technology, still the best-selling human-facing, consumer-facing service robot is the Roomba. Yes. That was launched 20 years ago. I can't remember the exact year, but it's been around for 20 years, or at least it feels like that, right? Yes. And, And the reason that they've been so successful is they do something that people hate to do, which is cleaning their floors, right? They do it reliably, and they do it at a price point that's affordable. Right. And that is why they've been so successful. So any sort of consumer facing service robot has to meet the same criteria. The good news is now with all the advancements that we talked about earlier, that is happening. I've seen it. It's, mm. it's going to happen. It's going to hit mainstream. And the fact that even some of the biggest consumer electronics companies like Samsung and LG and Sony, or even the biggest automotive companies like Honda, Hyundai, Toyota, they're all putting resources into it. It's a matter of time. Yeah, I agree completely. And I want to talk about this more. But before I do, I want to give a call out um, to our sponsor of Startup Hustle, Fullscale.io. So if you're out there looking for software engineers, building a software team, they can help you get that done more affordably and faster. Back to our episode. You know, like I said, we're facing a, a shortage of labor. And it's not just in this country. You look at Japan and with the aging demographics, they don't have enough young people even to take care of the old people, let alone to fill all the manufacturing jobs, service jobs, everything else Japan has. South Korea, 
you know, same thing, China, same thing, Europe, you know, it's pretty bad in Europe. So I think just the fact that we don't even have the humans to, to, fill, to perform all these tasks will create a stronger demand for these robots. And especially, you know, you know, I have aging parents now. So especially in taking care of the elderly, it's a really tough job. And it requires a lot of patience. And I know there's a super high turnover rate in that, you know, getting robots in there that can be compassionate and take time and understand, you know, if somebody with Alzheimer's, if you've tried to take care of them, it's not an easy job. It's probably one of the hardest jobs in the world, but a robot could potentially do that much better than a human can. Well, well, Steve, I I agree with you a hundred percent, but, but if you think about like a humanoid emotive robot, that is still, I don't know at least in my opinion, a decade away to become mainstream and affordable. Just, but, but just think about even before you get there, okay? Most people that are elderly would prefer to stay independent for as long as possible. Absolutely. Right? I think we all know that. I would feel the same way. And yet over time, we all know that we generally will lose some motor functions, right? We'll, that's why we need canes and walkers and whatnot. But think about things that we take for granted, because I don't know about you, I'm in my 50s now, but like, you know, just walking over to the kitchen, getting my food tray, sitting in front of the TV and having a nice TV dinner. If you need your hands for your cane and walker, you cannot do that. Yeah, it's really, right? really hard. And, and I'm, I'm going to give a shout out to one of my favorite robotic startups that I've, I've been following you know, for a long time now that uh, are on the, on the cusp of commercialization. They're, they're, they're a, gr- a great couple of guys down in San Diego um, uh, called Labrador. Think about a robot that just functions very simply as, you know, I can put my tray on it. It's like almost a tray robot. It follows me. It navigates through the home. And once I sit down, I can just grab it and whatnot. It could carry my bag. It can do anything for me. And it's just very simple, right? And the technology is there, um, the use case is there. And I believe that that is one of just many examples of practical applications. And it doesn't have to cost you an arm and leg. Right. See, that's where we're going to see the first, like, uh, the first wave of robots being really, really successful. And also, you know, when you're taking a shower, things like that, if you could have a, you know, robot in your bathtub that can help. I don't know really... how comfortable I feel, but I, I know. <laughs> but, <what> you, <laughs> you don't want a robot in your bathtub. But I know if you're elderly, like it's a chore to take, you know, yeah, to wash yourself. It's really, really hard. So, yes. you know, keeping, uh, let's move on to a few other areas. So what are, when, when we're talking about frontier technologies, what are some other exciting areas that you see? Oh boy. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot. Um, I, I know we, we started briefly talking about synthetic biology. We talked about genomics. Um, you know, I do want to come back to genomics. Um, we talked about CRISPR a lot, but, you know, even before we get to those kind of, you know, ethnically kind of, you know, challenging uh, questions and whatnot. You know, the fact of the matter is, look, um, DNA testing now has become mainstream. There's no question about it. And, you know, uh, I've been following a startup that actually has created a very interesting service because, you know, a lot of these um, DNA testing uh, kit companies, right? And you know what we're talking about. We're talking about the ancestries, the 23andMe's and whatnot of the world. 
you know, if you add all of those um, customers that have actually now have access to their own DNA data, which is an amazing treasure trough of, of data for anybody, um, that number is much higher than most people know. In fact, the last count, and this might be even dated, is over 15 million people in the US, right? So think about that, right? And the reason for that clearly, and way back when, you know, when I was working with, uh, you know, firms that were building DNA chips or gene chips at the time, Affymetrix, uh, if you think about the cost of sequencing that have dropped an order of, mag- in fact, a couple order of magnitudes down now, where for, you know, uh, $199 or even sometimes on a Black Friday promotion, 99 bucks, you know, you can get your DNA kit and DNA tested. Uh, that data is hugely valuable. So one of the startup companies that I really like that I haven't invested yet, but, you know, I'm keeping track on is basically a company that provides almost a portal service. So if you think about having access to your DNA data, and yet if you were to look at all the different services that take advantage of the data that you have, you would need to upload that by every separate uh, application. You would get information from that, but that management of all of my data across multiple different applications and different vendors is kind of a pain. So if you could actually have a trusted partner that I can upload my data and I'm you know, secure with my permission, would only give access to the certain applications that I want it to be because I want the information of that, whether it's nutrition, health, you know, even my personality and dating fits and all of that, then that's actually available at this uh, very cool startup called Genome Link. So, oh, that's that's interesting. And they anonymize it so that the third party that that gets the data wouldn't know the identity of the person who. No, no. So I completely control that, but they're my yeah. surrogate. So whenever I actually want access to a particular information service yes. or application, then I can give them permission to do that. But that's done securely. Yes. Yeah, securely and anonymously, right? So that third party can't then tie your name to that. Uh, to that data. Right. Right. That would be, that's very valuable because, you know, it has healthcare implications. If you have cancer in your family or you're likely to develop something, you know, people could use that against you in the future. I I know a lot of people concerned about that. And now you're right. There's so many services out there that you could use with your genetic data. A really good idea. I want to ask you something a little far out because our listeners like, you know, to go there, you know, Elon Musk has been touting brain computer interfaces. So, you know, what do you think of brain-computer interfaces, the ones that are available today, like the Muse, which is out there, and, yeah. you know, Elon Musk's brain chips that supposedly could transform humanity? Where do you come on, in on this frontier technology? Um, so, <laughs> so that's an area that uh, I've had some experience with, especially using brainwaves for, you know, control applications. Uh, I think you know the startups that we've, we've we, we, you know, that I'm sure you've seen them as well. Um, I've, I've been less than impressed with that. And there's a reason that, you know, um, those technologies haven't been really commercialized to the extent because it kind of works, but it's more like an, an on-off switch. It's very difficult to have more than a control of simply do you concentrate or not, right? Oh, and, so you're and, talking like controlling a drone or controlling a wheelchair. Oh, not even that. I mean, controlling even a video game. Uh, and I've seen some applications of that. But, but again... 
my experience with that is dated, right? So this is like, you know, close to a decade old. And, you know, there was a time where, you know, some of the startups were excited about, you know, why do you even need a joystick, right? Or a controller when you can use your mind to control video games. Now that obviously hasn't taken off, okay? Uh, but, um, you know, the areas that you're, emerge- uh, you're referring to, some of the areas that I do think make a lot of sense. And we know how all of us are now, you know, uh, stressed out and, you know, basically, you know, peace of mind and mental health is becoming a really, really big issue. If you can utilize some of these technologies that is actually very scientific and based, it could definitely help you to relax, to improve your concentration and memory. And I have seen applications and product companies that actually do that. Yeah, I know the Muse, for example. Yes. Uh, that, that's being used for meditation. And right. that's one of the most popular applications of it. You know, these EEG devices, um, brain-computer interfaces available today, they're still primitive. Like they're, right. it's, 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 they're, like you said, you know, you, they can tell if you're concentrating, they can tell if you're not concentrating, they can kind of tell different things about your brain waves. But we're going to see a next generation of these. And these things come about quite suddenly. You know, they're not here, they're not here, they're not here. And then su- it, it's not linear. And then suddenly there's a breakthrough. Um, with some technology, whether it's inserting a chip into your brain or some other technology, you know, they're talking about ultrasound, all these different ways to read brainwaves, um, fMRI, uh, these, uh, there's going to be a breakthrough where we can get pretty specific and we can start to pull out information like what, you know, what people are verbalizing in their head so that they can send text messages. I mean, I know they've, you, well, you're laughing, but you know, at Brown University and Duke, they've been running these experiments and they've actually done that. Like you can, but these people have chips in the brain. They've had, uh, you know, they've had, um, they're locked in syndrome. They've yeah, had strokes. And Steve, look, yeah. I, I'm not laughing. I'm just, you know, chuckling because, <laughs> no, no, you're right. It, it's yeah. definitely feasible. But yes. again, if you think about the cost benefit and, and there yes. are applications and use cases where folks, if they are, you know, somehow handicapped, so they have challenges with that, then it's absolutely a godsend and it's great. But for that to become mainstream, because there's so many more cost-effective alternatives out there for data input or voice entry, that um, I just don't see that being a viable commercial opportunity. Yes, and and you're probably right. It's, it's not going to happen within the next five years, but you know, further out, it gets harder and harder to predict. Um, if, uh, can you... You know, in your new company, uh, can you tell us about the size of the rounds you do? Like, are you are you really are you investing in earlier stage companies, mid stage, later stage? And then what's your kind of forecast for the market moving forward? Oh, God. (laughs) So the first part, you know, I thought you were going to let me off really easy. And then you throw that last question in there. So, Steve, happy to talk about GFT Ventures. I appreciate the opportunity. So um, we are a new fund. We're a hundred million dollar fund. And so because we have a relatively smaller size fund, we have to be super focused on the companies that we invest in. We invest from seed to series A. And now in this day and age where there's pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-A, A, there's a lot of categories. But fundamentally what we're looking for is a startup and an entrepreneur that has gone through perhaps an initial round of financing, whether it's bootstrapped or a pre-seed round has gone through a development phase of, let's say, six to 12 months, and now they are ready to go to market with a proof of concept, where they're ready to engage customers. They have a demo. 
a prototype, a sample, where they can either go to take that to show a go-to-market partner, or they can go to a first potential customer candidate. That is where we can add the most value because between, and you know my background, but between Jeff and myself, we have 20 years of corporate experience, right? And our network of friends who now are leading corporate innovation at most of the technology companies in North America, Asia, and Europe are going to be those first go-to-market partners and first customers. So, so that's the stage that we invest in, specifically dollar amount-wise. It could be as anywhere from a million up to you know, even 5 million initial check. Typical sweet spot, I would say, is two to three initially. And then over the lifetime of that investment, we would reserve at least 100% to be able to continue to support the startups over time. So that's in general our investment strategy. We're building a very concentrated portfolio up to 20 because we are hands-on. We like to get involved and add value either as a board member or an observer. And um, so far, we've closed on three investments. We've just approved two more. So we're actually you know, off to the races on that front. And they're pretty much diverse across the board. So we have an AI company that, uh, you know, the entrepreneur uh, was a former colleague of Jeff's from NVIDIA, head of the data science team that is tackling a very interesting issue, connecting marketing spend to actual sales effectiveness, right? And you have the data in Salesforce. And if you can use AI and data science techniques to use time series analysis, then you can correlate the marketing spend across different channels, you know, across different um, marketing messages and platforms and whatnot, and see what actually is effective so that you can support a CMO to justify their existence, to know actually whatever marketing spend they're doing actually is effective. So that's one, that's kind of an obvious kind of sweet spot for us. Um, I've been doing blockchain investments uh, since 2013. Um, you know, I remember my first ever Bitcoin purchase, it was at 88 bucks. I just regret that I didn't purchase more at the time. But yeah, who um, doesn't at 88 bucks? Oh my God. Yeah. That's, you got uh, in early. Yeah, it, it was early. And, you know, if you're early enough, then you become a part of that early kind of investor ecosystem and entrepreneur ecosystem, which I've been very fortunate to kind of be an early member of the regular VC crowd that's also doing crypto uh, and um, blockchain investing. But um, a couple of. Um, uh, opportunities that we've already invested. One is in an NFT company. Now, there are hundreds of NFT companies because there's almost zero barrier. Technically, uh, there's zero barrier to putting together a business plan. Anybody can do that. I'm going to get IP from XNX and I'm going to create a marketplace and sell that to consumers. But ultimately, if you think about it, the IP owners are only going to entrust their most valuable IP assets to credible teams. And this particular team that's going after the music industry happens to have an amazing experience set of arguably from one of the most prolific consumer-facing AI-based recommendation uh, engine companies, which in this day and age is TikTok. So this company comes out of TikTok, but not only have they done that front-end user experience, but also they've built Blockfolio, which is one of the leading consumer crypto asset management apps out there. So that combination of team gives a lot of credibility. That's why a lot of the music IP owners from artists, brands, labels, uh, and platforms have uh, been willing to work with them. And then finally, um, another the other company we've invested, it's blockchain infrastructure, right? And 
again, I don't want to go into a religious argument of whether or not blockchain is real or blockchain is here or not. It's already here. It's already real. And if you haven't got that message, then you're probably not listening to this podcast anyway. What I would say is this company, because they've been building infrastructure for 25 years, they've built infrastructure for the internet, mobile, they're just doing the same for blockchain. And one of the key infrastructures now is custody and staking. So if you're familiar with the concept, and Steve, I know you are, mm -hmm. then you know, with more and more entities from asset management companies, hedge funds to corporates and individuals, family offices and whatnot are owning more crypto assets, managing them is actually a pain in the butt, right? So that's why you actually have banks to actually manage your cash for you. And you have brokerage firms to manage your stocks and equity for you. And the same function, uh, this company called Figment is actually providing, and they've become one of the leading institutional uh, crypto custody and staking companies out there doing really, really well. That's so fantastic. I'll finally get to your question, Steve, about what do you think the market's going to bear? Um, and I know you and I were talking about this right before we started the podcast. You know what? It is really, really, really difficult for me to predict. And, you know, I think private conversations that I have with very, very experienced um, investors and entrepreneurs, um, we always know that we've seen all these cycles come and go. This cycle that we're in is unprecedented, right? It's the longest we've had in the history of the markets. Um, and as we all know, private company valuations are driven by public comps. The public company valuations are kind of really, really crazy right now. Um, there's clearly been a lot of analysis about why that's the case. And I won't even go there. There's been a lot of cash been uh, thrown out there. There's an argument to be made that the entire economy has been shifted more and more towards technology, especially being accelerated by COVID. And the market drivers of the crazy valuations are really the tech stocks, right? But how long is that sustainable? I have never been able to properly answer the timing question. And it's actually a losing question to answer because you're going to be wrong every single time. It's almost like timing when you sell a stock because you're never going to be right. You're always going to be late too late or too early. So Steve, that's kind of a chicken way for me to back up. What I will say is as a venture investor, all I can do is be able to plant seeds every spring, okay? And hope that when they're ready to harvest, it's gonna be like the past couple of years. Yes. And then we'll all be very, very happy. Yes. <laughs> and if you're investing in good companies that provide real value to customers, at the end of the day, they'll be around. And, the, and oh, all, the, all the other ones won't. So, Jay, <laughs> it has been fantastic having you here. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. I want to also thank the sponsor of Startup Hustle, Fullscale.io. They make hiring software teams affordable and quick. And, Jay, we're going to leave now. So where can people find you? How can they find you if they, want, if they have business plans or other things and they want to approach you? Steve, thank you so much again for this great opportunity. It's always fun to have conversations with you. And as you said, you know, it's almost like having a coffee chat over Zoom. Um, but uh, yes, I appreciate the opportunity. So we're GFT Ventures, Global Frontier Technology Ventures. Our website URL is very simple, gft.vc. And my email address is j, that's J-A-Y, at gft.vc. 
feel free to reach out to me. We'd love to hear from you if you have any exciting business plans around Frontier Tech. And uh, Steve, once again, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Jay. And for all of you out there, I'm your guest host, Steve Hoffman. If you want to reach out to me, just go to founderspace.com. That's founderspace.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn or any of the other social networks. And you know, on Founderspace, we also, if you want to submit your business plan to our startup accelerator, you can do that. We have lots of videos, an online startup kit, my podcast. So go out there and check it out. And thank you all for tuning in to Startup Hustle. All right. Thanks again, Steve. Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.